The podcast has been on a bit of a hiatus, as it's the busiest part of the semester for me, and Annika and Megan have also been swamped with work. But we look forward to resuming Season 1 very soon. In the meantime, even with my grading not quite finished, I couldn't resist posting something for November 29th, which is the day the Anglican Church commemorates C.S. Lewis. In honor of the day, I thought I'd read part of Walter Hooper's introduction from The Weight of Glory and Other Essays, published by HarperCollins. Hopefully this isn't a horrible violation of copyright law. Um, You can access what I'm about to read as a free sample of the Kindle book anyway, and I'll link to it in the show notes. In in this introduction, Hooper relates anecdotes from the last year of C.S. Lewis's life. I've always found this an inspiring account and testimony of Lewis's own sanctity. Um, Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Here it is. My relation to Lewis may be similar to that of others, but it can't be exactly like. As this book is being edited primarily for Americans, I should explain that after I had corresponded with Lewis for some years, he invited me to come over in the spring of 1963 from my native United States for what I hoped would be as much as a single conversation over a cup of tea. I don't believe in luck, but I do believe in angels, and the coveted tea party turned out to be, if it needs a name, quote, the observations of a late arrival, or a single summer with CSL. In any event, as the sources of our first-hand evidence about him decrease with the years, I hope that mine will be of some interest to those who feel as I do about that merriment of the merriest kind, of which there seems no abundance these days. It took some time for an American such as myself to adapt to English conveniences. I see, for instance, from my diary of 7th June 1963, that during a longish visit with Lewis, we drank what seemed gallons of tea. After a while, I asked to be shown the bathroom, forgetting that in most homes, the bathroom and toilet are separate rooms. With a kind of mock formality, Lewis showed me to the bathroom, pointed to the tub, flung down a pile of towels, and closed the door behind me. I returned to his sitting room to say that it was not a bath I wanted, but... Well, sir, choose you this day, said Lewis, bursting with laughter as he quoted the prophet Joshua. That will break you of those silly American euphemisms. And now, where is it you wanted to go? I see from other entries I made that Lewis, or Jack as he preferred to be called by his friends and I, were meeting at least three or four times a week, sometimes at his house, at other times in a pub with a group of friends called the Inklings. I knew that he was ill indeed, that he had been so since 1961 when the troubles with his health began. He, however, seemed to think little of it, and as he looked so robust, it was easy to forget it when in company with this ruddy, six-foot, genial man. Hence the surprise of finding him not well enough to attend Mass with me on July 14th. He urged me to remain there with him, and this was a memorable day for me in more ways than one. It was then that he asked me to accept immediately a post as his literary assistant and personal secretary, and later, after resigning my teaching position at the University of Kentucky, to return to Oxford to resume my duties. Lewis went for a routine examination the next morning to the Ackland Nursing Home, and much to everyone's surprise, he sank into a coma lasting about 24 hours from which the doctors did not believe he would recover. Our mutual friends, the Reverend Dr. Austin Ferrer and his wife, were to be on holiday in Wales from the 16th through the 31st of July, but at Lewis's request they remained in Oxford until the 17th so that Austin Farrer could hear his confession and give him the Blessed Sacrament. 
Lewis wanted me to receive the sacrament with him, but as I was not ill, this was not allowed. In that case, Lewis said, you must be present to do the kneeling for me. With so much to do for him at this time, I was unable to keep a regular diary. However, I see from a letter I wrote to the Farrers on July 30th from Lewis's home, and now part of the Farrer papers in the Bodleian Library, Oxford, that I already moved into Lewis's home by that time. Rather than tell Lewis how close he had come to dying, the doctors appeared to leave this to me. When I judged the time to be right, I told him about the coma and the few days when his mind was disordered. Thereafter, Lewis continued to believe that the extreme unction administered during the coma and his reception of the Blessed Sacrament had saved his life. Even before he went into the nursing home, I marveled that Lewis had lived so long without setting himself ablaze. Except when he dressed for a special occasion, he wore an old tweed jacket, the right-hand pocket of which had been patched and repatched many times. This was because Lewis, when wearied of his pipe, would drop it into his pocket, with the result that it would burn its way through. And this happened so often that there was none of the original material left. The nurses in the Ackland, having found him nodding with a cigarette in his hand, would have none of this. And so it was that, except when I was with him, they would not allow him to have any matches. What puzzled Lewis was that after I had left him with a box of matches, a nurse would, as soon as I left, rush in and take them away. How do they know? He asked me in one more. He asked me one morning. Give me a box I can hide under my bedclothes. I had then to confess that while I was the supplier, I was also the informer. Informer! roared Lewis. I have what no friend ever had before. I have a private traitor, my very own personal Benedict Arnold. Repent before it's too late! I loved all the rough and tumble of this, and I fancy I pulled his leg about as often as he pulled mine. But there was the gentler side that was just as typical. There was one incident that took place in the Ackland, which the readers of, this, of his Narnian stories might find as endearing as I did. It occurred on one of those days when Lewis's mind was disordered, and when, as I noticed, he could not recognize any of those who dropped in to see him, not even Professor Tolkien. The last visitor of the day was his foster sister, Maureen Moore, uh, Maureen Moore Blake, who a few months previously, and by a very unexpected turn of events, had become Lady Dunbar of Hempriggs, with a castle and a vast estate in Scotland. She was the first woman in three centuries to succeed to a baronetcy. They had not met since this happened, and hoping to spare her any disappointment, I told her that he had not been able to recognize any of his old friends. He opened his eyes when she took his hand. Jack, she whispered, it is Maureen. No, replied Lewis, smiling. It is Lady Dunbar of Hembriggs. Oh, Jack, how could you remember that? She asked. On the contrary, he said, how could I forget a fairy tale? One day, when he was obviously much better, but not completely out of danger, he asked why I looked so glum. The reason for the glumness was that living in our neighborhood was a fierce old atheist of about 97 who went out for a brisk walk every day. Whenever we met, he asked if Lewis was still alive, and on receiving my reply that he was indeed quite ill, he invariably said, Nothing wrong with me. I have a long time yet. I told Lewis that I was tempted, very strongly tempted, to tell our Lord that I thought it monstrously unfair that he should allow the naughty old atheist to seemingly go on forever, and yet let Lewis, who was only 64, come so close to the point of death. Mind you, I said, observing Lewis's face cloud over, I haven't actually said it in my prayers, but I've come pretty close. And what do you think our Lord would say to that? 
Lewis said with a discouraging look. What? What is that to you? Anyone who has read St. John 21-22, our Lord's rebuke to St. Peter, will recognize Lewis's application of it in this instance. And then tenderly, tenderly, Lewis comforted me in what I imagined was his sorrow, but which he knew was mine. The worst over, there was a return of the high spirits and uproarious sense of fun that I found one of the most attractive things about Lewis. But it would take someone of Boswell's talents to give the right idea to the completeness of this remarkable man to show how naturally the humor blended into the more serious side and indeed was one of the causes of his greatness of heart, his large intellect, and the most open charity I have ever found in anyone. He was a man, many of us have come to see, of common instincts combined with very uncommon abilities. Perhaps it is worth recording that I knew, I just knew, that no matter how long I lived and no matter who else I met, I should never be in the company of such a supremely good human being again. Of all my memories, this is the most indelible, and it is certain to remain so. I brought Lewis home on 6th of August, along with a male nurse, a Scotsman named Alec Ross, whose responsibility it was to stay awake nights, should he be needed. Lewis and I had been together almost continuously for two months, and I was even more comfortable with him now than that now that we were in the same house. He had not once complained about conditions in the Ackland, excepting, of course, my traitorous behavior over the appearing and disappearing matches. Certainly, he snuggled back into his familiar surroundings with much pleasure. Sensing that he liked being left alone a little while after lunch, I asked if he ever took a nap. Oh, no, he replied, but mind you, sometimes a nap takes me. He had kept up his dictating of letters during his stay in the Ackland. And although he was able to do more of this at home, he gave, as well as, he gave as well more attention to the problems which, since 1961, he knew could become worse should he die suddenly, his brother's unfortunate problem with alcohol, and the future of his two stepsons, who had, besides losing their mother in 1960, seen other sadnesses as well. But I mention these things because it was then I observed something I had never seen in anyone else, excepting as I was to learn later his friend Owen Barfield. Lewis had his share, some would say more than his share, of worries. But having done all in his power to solve them, he left the matter to God and got on with his work and pleasures. Those who go, to, those who go on to read, for example, the additions to his sermon Transposition, of which more later, will perhaps understand what may sound like sweet banality, but isn't, that Lewis really wanted and liked the happiness which the Divine Son died to give all men. And this I observed at the time some ten years before I saw in the Bodleian the whole thing put so succinctly in a letter to his brother of 28th of January, 1940, in which he says, quote, I begin to suspect that the world is divided not only into the happy and the unhappy, but into those who like happiness and those who, odd as it seems, really don't. Without meaning any offense, I suspect that those who carry on about social consciousness, or whatever the current jargon is, would not understand this. Still, that is the way it was. Our nurse hardly knew what to make of Lewis. Alec was not a learned man, but he was fortunate in being one of the few male nurses at that time. And for this reason, he had been able to pick and choose his patients nearly always with an eye as to whether they were fabulously rich, famous for something or the other, and, he hoped, possessed of a Rolls Royce. He was a good nurse, but he had a foul tongue. At his first sight of the kitchen, he pronounced the house to be a pigsty and very quickly had the servants sweeping, mopping, and disinfecting as fast as it could be done. 
But there remained for him the mystifying con contradiction of a far from attractive house presiding presided over by a somebody. We were taking our tea alone one day when he asked whether he couldn't think of the name who's who. The great man was in that big book. Lewis was coming through the door and overheard the, and overhearing this said, Aye, aye, Alec. I am in what you in Scotland would call Hwa's Hwa. That did it. Alec was thereafter devoted to Lewis for his humor and self-forgetfulness, it now making no difference whether Lewis was famous for anything Alec thought important. In August, Lewis dictated a letter announcing his retirement from Cambridge. Then, at the end of the month, with Alec left to keep an eye on Lewis, his stepson Douglas Gresham and I were sent to Cambridge to sort out his affairs and bring home many of the 2,000 or so books from his Magdalen Co Maudlin college rooms. This done, we hired a lorry to transport us and the books to Oxford. All the way home, I wondered where the books could go in a house already filled to the burst bursting point. But Lewis had laid his plans. Alec occupied what was called the music room, a large room on the ground floor, empty except for a bed in one corner. Having been up all night, Alec was asleep when we arrived. As the lorry pulled into the drive, there was Lewis cautioning us to be quiet. "'Where'll we store the books?' I whispered. Lewis answered with a wink. With infinite pain so as not to awaken Alec, we spent an hour or so carrying the books into the music room and stacking them around the nurse's bed." He was still snoring when the last one was added to the great wall of books, which was nearly as high as the ceiling, and which filled every square inch of the room, nearly every square inch of the room. About the time the nurse usually woke, Lewis and I were waiting outside for the results. Then it happened. Alec woke, found himself entombed in books, and bellowed at the top of his voice. Suddenly, part of the great wall of books tumbled down, and a body scrambled out. Over drinks, Alec pronounced it to be the best uh, damned joke. He had seen played on anyone. If I have said less than some would wish about Lewis's specifically religious position, that is because I assume that it is already quite clear. Rather, I have tried to indicate from personal recollections that Dr. Johnson might well have had such a man as C.S. Lewis in mind in suggesting that, quote, the size of a man's understanding might always be justly measured by his mirth. If I have failed, then the splendid pieces that comprise this collection ought, as they say, to make up for everything. Lewis was a truly modest man. If his books came naturally into our conversation, he would talk about them with the same detachment as in discussing some stranger's works. But he had no interest, as far as I could see, in his literary or theological position in the world. One evening, this came up rather naturally. We had been talking about one of our favorite books, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, and I mentioned how disappointed I sometimes felt when, say, Sir Lancelot went out to deliver a helpless lady from some peril or other. Then, just at the point where you can't admire him enough for his selflessness, he explains to someone, as though it was the most natural thing in the world, that he is doing it to, quote, win worship, that is, to increase his reputation. We recognized it as an inheritance from paganism. Without intending any embarrassment, I asked Lewis if he was ever aware of the fact that regardless of his intentions, he was, quote, winning worship from his books. He said in a low, still voice, and with the deepest and most complete humility I've ever observed in anyone, one cannot be too careful not to think of it. The house, the garden, the whole universe seemed hushed for a moment. And then we began talking again. As those poignantly happy months drew to an end, and the time came for me to return to the United States, Lewis and I began planning for his retirement. 
the books he would write, the duties I would relieve him of, our study together of the old French sources that lie behind Mallory's Mort. Even now, years later, those happy prospects have the power to tease me with such hopes as Lewis's Jill thought of in the last battle when, quote, the picture of all those happy years piled up till it was rather like looking down from a high hill onto a rich, lovely plain full of woods and waters and cornfields which spread away and away till it got thin and misty from distance. But Lewis died suddenly on 22nd November, 1963. At times when asked about him, I have made it clear that I was with him for only three months. But I think I do a disservice to both his memory and his kindness by that word only. Have we not all felt a lasting bond with someone we have known only minutes and yet failed, for such is the nature of things, to achieve any intimacy with those we have run into for half an hour or so over a period of years? Make of it what you will. I am ashamed to admit that I once thought that because the plans Lewis and I made together did not run on into the years, I was somehow cheated. If not wicked, it is ungracious. All right. I'll stop the reading there. Um, it's worth reading all of the essays in The Weight of Glory, um, if you haven't already, and we'll be talking about some of those, I'm sure, in the years to come. Um, but in the meantime, do stay tuned for our next, um, our, our second half of our um, conversation about on fairy stories, um, which, which we'll be re- releasing probably sometime um, later this week. Um, so until then, I um, wish you a happy C.S. Lewis Day and a happy beginning of Advent. Take care.